It is now. I saw you coming. Nah, it's okay. Thanks. My daughters always laugh at me about how technologically sophisticated I am. Although one's here in Cambridge and the other's in New York, I'm sure they're chuckling right now. Um, how many of you have a regular uh, sitting practice? Okay, great. So um, how many of you who don't have a regular sitting practice have an irregular sitting practice or have had some instruction in sitting? Okay. Uh, so we're going to sit for a few minutes together. Uh, so putting the body into a position that's alert and upright. Remembering that our practice is not about uh, getting comfortable, but rather about being stable in the midst of whatever's happening moment to moment. So whether you're sitting on the floor, on a bench, on a cushion, on a chair, the spine is long, uh, a sense of an elegance in sitting in this way. And once uh, you've found a kind of a centered, stable, mountain-like sense in your body sitting. Then uh, take up the vow to not move for the next few minutes. Allow your attention to rest uh, with the movement of the breath, the sensations created by the breath coming in and going out, Uh, wherever you notice them most clearly. So sitting with an upright, alert body, uh, with a gentle attention to the sensations of breathing, and simply letting everything else be exactly as it is, Sounds, sensations, thoughts. Uh, No need to do anything with them. Simply alert to the body sitting, the breath moving, and life being just as it is.
So for those of you who are moving, uh, see if you can uh, notice what happens in the mind and body right before that movement. It's almost always about unpleasant sensation and the desire to get rid of it. Now check the body while you're keeping it very still. Not turning away from unpleasant sensations. Staying with the breath. And seeing if the body can relax a bit. so that it's still, stable, unmoving, relaxed. And breathing. And if you're able to stay with this still, unmoving, relaxed body, with an awareness of breathing, include sound in this. There's nothing you really have to do. Sound is simply here.
And if you're able to stay with this very simple practice, notice if the body-mind feels more or less settled as you do this. Notice how quiet the room has become. I actually had no plans to do that before I sat down. Uh, I was sitting uh, over there for the sitting this evening and uh, was noticing uh, how sleepy I was. And uh, the room was pretty warm. And um, just noticing the going to sleep and waking up and noticing how I was not alone in that. Uh, if you want to uh, sort of entertain yourself at some point, make sure you sit at the back of a meditation hall the first sitting after lunch. It's like eggplants in the breeze. Um, you know, often we, we might hear an instruction about sit still and don't move. Or maybe we don't even get that instruction. And often we're not told why. Um, in Zen, most traditional Zendos, you're just told, sit still and don't move. Um, and you may be growled at if you do. Um, I, from what I can gather, there's, there's not a lot of, of attention paid in, in Vipassana circles uh, towards the benefits and the reasons for really taking up the posture and sticking to it and not moving. You know, and, and we're, often we don't even know we're moving. Or the mind will say, oh, it's okay to take my glasses off. Or it's okay to, you know, roll my head around my neck because it's a little uncomfortable. Every time we do that, what we're cultivating is restlessness and reactivity. And we often don't look at what's, what precedes that. You know, the, the, as far as I can tell, the, the Buddha was, you know, quite clear about the aim of our practice and, and the only reason we're doing it. It's not to uh, get more relaxed. It's not to, to have pleasant sensations or special experiences. Or as Joseph Goldstein once said, to develop a permanent tickle. Uh, it's to learn stability in our life as it is. And we, pra- we learn stability by practicing it. That's what the precepts are about. 
You know, they, pro they provide us a kind of, of gentle but firm frame for how we live our lives off the cushion. And so when we sit like this and we're not, uh, we're really exquisitely attentive to the, you know, the little move of the shoulder or the little move of the back or, you know, the wiggle of the toe. This is not some sort of rigid, you know, let's sit there, you know, like a rock kind of thing. It's really in the spirit of learning how the mind-body interact and how suffering arises and how we're so reflexive in terms of dealing with it. You know, the fact that we, you know, scratch our ear or whatever on the cushion, we're doing that all the time during the day. We overeat, we overexercise. I mean, the, the metaphorical itch that we scratch to excess I mean, we're all familiar with that. As human beings, it goes with the human condition. And at the heart of that is this dynamic of selfing and suffering and avoidance. So even something as simple as sitting still for, you know, putting a timer on and saying, I'm going to sit for 15 minutes and I'm not going to move and I'm going to be interested in what happens. That has direct application to uh, maybe fully stopping at a stop sign or not energetically getting out on the front bumper of our car because the person in front of us isn't going quite as fast as we'd like. Yeah. Or you can, you can see this for yourselves throughout the day. So this is just sort of one uh, hint about how to, how to take this practice off the cushion into your, the rest of your life. Because if we're not doing that, you know, we end up like little hothouse plants. We do, you know, great on retreat and while we're sitting, but boy, once we're out in the cold, uh, we don't do very well. And so we play like we practice. Um, so this morning... Uh, Someone was saying, Jim, really sorry, I'm not going to be at your talk. And I said, well, I'm really not sure what I'm going to say. She said, well, you've got a title. And yeah, um, but often I don't talk on the title that I came up with. Um, she said, you're kind of hard to manage, aren't you? And I said, yeah. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> One of the reasons it was suggested that I do a talk on Anapanasati is this, you know, this uh, practice group that I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks. Um, you can still see I'm still struggling a bit with this. Uh, so I think I think what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm just going to, for the, how many of you are not familiar with the Anapanasati Sutta or even, or even the word Anapanasati? It's Greek. Okay, it's Pali actually, but often the same thing. Um, so um, Anapana means breath, Sati means mindfulness. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness with breathing. Uh, the, there's a, a, a very simple uh, streamlined Really, it's a meditation manual. Uh, one of the earliest in, in uh, the Buddhist tradition called the Anapanasati Sutta, or the teaching on full awareness, 
again, of breathing or with breathing. Um, around here, we tend to translate it as with breathing because it, yes, it has much to do with the breath, but it also has much more to do with than just the breath. Um, it's, um, like I said, a kind of sequential training manual that people can follow. It's 16 contemplations that cover four sections of the, the, the body, uh, what's, what are called feelings, but in Buddhist terms really mean sensations that are registered as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Uh, mind states under which what we would usually call feelings fall, uh, anger, sadness, um, the hindrances, uh, sleepiness, aversion, greed, etc., confusion, or under that particular chapter, if you will. And then what are called the dharmas, um, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Um, it really uses the breath as a way to develop stability. And it can be used on and off the cushion. So it's an object of contemplation. And when you think about really watching the breath, and we're going to be doing, I'm going to take a pause here in a minute, and we're going to do some of this. Because if you're attending to the breath, and you're really attending to it carefully, you have to notice three things. It's moving. Each breath is different. Each in-breath and each out-breath are a little bit different. And they change dramatically over the course of a sitting. That's impermanence. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, sometimes it's more prominent on the in-breath, sometimes more prominent on the out-breath. And as you're noticing this, you're refining the attention. Um, You also notice that the breath changes without choice. I mean, do you you choose an in-breath or an out-breath, the length of it? Or whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or clear or not? No. It's it's not self. You know, it's be literally we're being breathed. And so even the even the very common, oh I'm breathing phrasing is really untrue. And that's only the beginning of examining what the mind does with phenomena generally. How it personalizes, takes ownership, makes separation. Sooner or later, there's, man, this is really boring. In, out, in, out, in, out. You know, what about all the jhanas? What about all the, you know, the bells and whistles? Um, and I'm still growling at my partner and my kids still think I'm, you know, you know, particularly if they're teenagers, you who have teenagers have some idea of what they're thinking about you. Um, and we personalize all that. And that's suffering. I don't like this the way it is. I want it to be some other way. And we see that in relationships all the time. If you would just behave differently, I'd be okay. 
I wouldn't be nervous. I wouldn't be upset. You know, I wouldn't be aggravated. So all you have to do is behave the, the way I want you to, and I'm good. Right? The catch with that, of course, is you can't be somebody that you're not right now. And how you are is how you are right now. So basically what I'm saying to you is if you'd just be somebody else, we'd be cool. Right? Now that's a little nuts. Right? And very common. It's very common. So in this very simple uh, teaching of the Buddha on mindfulness uh, with breathing, you see the whole of the teaching of the Buddha laid out. And these 16 contemplations also are a kind of roadmap because diagnostically when you're talking with somebody, you can get a sense of sort of where they're at. You know, they need a little more attention to the breath. Or the breath could be a little more of a help when they're working with some real aversion on or off the cushion. And then it collapses, or it can collapse, and for most people this is how it happens, into what's called the condensed method, which is uh, you develop a stability of attention on the breath, stability of the body, uh, and then you kind of let the, the attention widen from this, from this more tight focal concentration. You just open it up and you say, I'm here, life, y'all come. You know, there's a there's a, a little vignette that's attributed to the uh, uh, Chinese Zen teacher Lin Chi, who in his monastery every morning at the crack of dawn would be heard to throw up on his wooden shutters and with a roar yell out, "What have you got for me today?" You know, and that's kind of the spirit in our sitting. You know, when we begin to deepen and stabilize with this. Okay, I'm kind of I've, I've got some stability. I can kind of open up to whatever shows up and learn in relationship to that by how I avoid it to be increasingly stable and equanimous. Okay? Equanimity is not something that we uh, come by easily unless we're being prescribed a certain kind of medication, you know, which for some of us that sometimes is absolutely appropriate. And that's different. That's a different intervention than meditation. Right? And, and I know that may sound obvious, but I don't know who's in the room here with me. And I no longer take anything for granted. It, partly because there's a, lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk and stuff out there that actually leads us to believe that meditation is just a substitute for medication, right? It's cheap Ativan and doesn't have the same kind of addictive properties, right? And that's really not what the teachings of the Buddha are about. So any questions up to this point? I just wanted to give you some, since there were a number of hands that went up that didn't know this kind of thing. Any questions at this point? Yeah, go ahead. Mind getting still, and you said, and then it starts to get boring, 
We personalized it. You used three things. Yeah. One of them was personalization. What were the other two? Impermanence and suffering, I think. That's what comes to mind now. Okay. Personalized and... Anybody else remember what... Maybe it'll pop up again. Yeah. Would anybody else be interested in having some of the windows cracked open a little yes. bit? Yes. Sure. Well, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you can give it a try. My experience with that? Go, go ahead. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So, yeah. Well, one I heard it used a long time ago. <laughs> it's not something I invented. Um, and I, you know, I began to experiment with that. What, is it, what does it feel like to sit with a kind of dignity? What does it feel like to sit with a kind of graceful ease? What has to happen for that to occur naturally? Um... Is there a natural elegance? Is there a practiced elegance? And so it became a it it, it became an interesting sort of point for inquir- of inquiry for me. And as you know, as as I'm trying to think through the answer to your question, these are the kinds of things that are coming to mind. Um, you know, when I when I turn around and look at one of these statues, to me there's a kind of beauty there. Um, and it's a word that comes to mind that kind of captures this alert, relaxed, um, dignified posture. That's different, yeah, right. That's and a root that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a wonderful distinction. Thank you. Yeah, because the, the word byproduct, right? It's, and, and sure, it's it, very natural to, to want that, and, and that can actually help focus our practice. At some point, that wanting will become, can become, an edge of suffering, partly because it's not always predictable. However, it becomes more likely. You know, and that's a really nice way to catch the on the cushion, off the cushion relationship, right? Because if we're not seeing this impact our lives off the cushion, we need to be talking to somebody because our practice and our approach to it needs some adjusting. Uh, and the other thing is that often people will find, just as you mentioned, that, that you, know, you may come into the practice using medication. And you may find, you may not, but it's not uncommon to find, that uh, that bodily need, that neurological need, becomes less over time. 
Because the fact is that this, these practices do activate parts of the brain that begin to balance that system. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it seems like uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the breath as an object of mindfulness in Buddhism. Yeah. Um, and I've always had a really hard time finding my breath. Yeah. Um, I've, prob- I've had a um, daily meditation practice for probably about four or five months at this point, and I've almost always used touch points and sound. Um, yeah. Rather than breath, mm-hmm. am, I, am I like missing out on something? Um, is there, is there something? Absolutely. And if you come to the course I'm teaching, I'll let you know what it is. <laughs> no, and, and you know it's another great question because I got to tell you, one size doesn't fit all. Okay, so uh, one of the, I remember Larry describing the the. Um, there's a teacher named Krishnamurti who some of you may know, and and a very, very austere and spare teaching. And and Larry described his teaching as sort of a, a single jewel. And the Buddha's teaching as a kind of department store, you know, that really has uh, what you need, you will find there. Kay's teachings, very steep and and not for everybody for sure and not without a practice for most and so you know the the uh the use of the breath yeah it gets trumpeted a lot and it does in in most religions you know i mean it's the breath is considered sacred for a pretty obvious reason you know we breathe in we breathe out we don't breathe in again we get called dead right I mean, our life literally hangs on that. So it's kind of a big deal. Right? Now, the, the, um, as an object for attention, for, for practice, you know, it's, you and I could do some, some work, I think, individually, and I could probably help you find the, the sensations of the breath more easily and more productively. But if you've found something, sound is a wonderful it's a wonderful, wonderful access because it's the same thing, right? It's moving all the time. It's unpredictable. You don't get to choose what sounds come to the ear, nor do you get to choose how the mind-body reacts to those sounds, right? I mean, it's tweet, 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 mm. right? I mean, no choice, but the mind-body are going to have two very different experiences with that. And there's the possibility to understand suffering. I mean, why do you always have to run a fire truck down, up and down the street right when I'm in the middle of deep samadhi? What's wrong with that? Right? Suffering. Right? Oh, isn't that bird beautiful? Maybe not suffering until it stops or the fire engine starts. Right? So sound can be a wonderful way. And in terms of inquiry, it's, it can be very, and I don't know if I'll get to this or not. I was going to do some structured stuff with you guys tonight, but, you know, to wonder who's hearing this sound or what's hearing this sound. And is there somebody, we personalize stuff all the time. Oh, I heard that. You know, even, oh, I turned off the alarm clock. Take a look and see how that goes. Right? I mean, there's all, 
so much of the time, the mind's making up a story to explain something that's already happened. I mean, when I look at how the alarm clock gets turned off in the morning, there's a reaction in the in the body. The hand's in motion. I don't lay there thinking, oh, now the hand will go up and it will move over and turn off the alarm clock. That's not what I've noticed. You know, the hand is, we're activated, right? And we we tell the story, and they, look, it's we're social beings. We have to be able. Hey, I got up. I got up at seven o'clock, five o'clock, whatever, and I turned the alarm clock off. You know, if you if you talk to the average person in the street or your partner, and say, no, "I didn't turn the alarm clock off," there was a, there was a stimulus. The body responded. The hand went over, and they're going to look at you like, "I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop that." Yeah. So. <laughs> We personalize this stuff so much, and the Buddha, t- you know, there's a there's a there's a little sermon called the Fire Sermon. Some of you are probably familiar with it, and the the gist of it is that every we're all on fire, on fire with what? Greed, anger, and ignorance. We're ablaze with it. The world is ablaze with it. Don't believe that? Pick up a newspaper. Right? I mean, the world is on fire with this stuff. And the Buddha said, our task is to put that out. Well, how can you put it out if you don't know what's feeding it? What the source of it is? The Buddha said the source of that is the confused view that what we think to be me or I is exactly what we think it to be. And he didn't say there's nothing there. (laughs) He didn't say we don't have an identity. He did say that our confusion around what that is is the source of our sorrow. You know, the, this, this uh, confusion that the, the mind, the me, our images, need the same kind of security and protection that our body do, does. Right? If, I'm, if I'm lost in the woods and it's 20 below zero, that's a real threat. Because that's going to kill me in a hurry. If I'm getting a cold shoulder from somebody and I'm all bent out of shape about that and feeling threatened by that, it's not the same thing, but the body-mind get activated in a very similar way. Right? This, this defensive, uh, um, this protection racket around the me, and we very rarely ask, Who's this happening to? Oh, I'm just pissed off. Well, who's pissed off? I got treated really bad. Who did that happen to? Well, me. Well, go a little deeper. You know, what is that? Now, Buddha said that's the way we begin to understand the source of our suffering. 
Let me loop back real quickly to sitting. The Buddha talks about understanding suffering. Now, if you think of that as a metaphor, literally standing under suffering. It has to be, we have to really be clear about how the mind operates to create suffering. And if we're in avoidance mode, on and off the cushion, we'll never get that. We'll never get it. And so there's, a, there's an interesting edge around this. How can I stay uh, persistent enough and intentional enough to hold myself to that edge without abusing myself in the process? You know, beating myself up because, oh, I just moved, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here regardless. You know, yeah, I threw my back out, but what the heck, you know, it'll come back. But I'm going to... Again, it's literally this middle path. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's more than just a middle path. It's like running along an ice ridge. Because yeah. it's, so, it's so slippery. I mean, if you just notice staying with the breath, what an ice ridge that is. You know, in, out, I'm with it. In, out, in. And I wake up in, you know, being in Poughkeepsie someplace. Yeah, how did I get in Poughkeepsie? I don't know, off the ice ridge. You know? The beauty of this is where do we start? Right where we wake up. And that's a really important piece to this. We wake up, you know, the eggplants of which I was a part of in the in the earlier sitting. Wow, what a gift, right? What a gift. You know, we drift off. What a gift. We catch ourselves in mid-phrase, internally or externally. What an idiot that person. They're all... Oh. What a gift. To be able to hold ourselves to that without being self-abusive. And that's the development of compassion. It's not, it's not practicing, you know, phrases, which can also be useful. But that's, that's, that's a kind of, of structured practice that if it stays at that level of structuredness, it stays at the level of the conditioned. And the natural growth of compassion, loving kindness, and wisdom are really the reflections of what's not conditioned. You know, waking up, that's not conditioned. The state of being awake is not conditioned. (coughs) Coming back to the breath, that's conditioned. In that case, we're using a formal, structured practice to develop enough stability to live expansively. So, other questions at this point? Yes. I actually spent a lot of the day today worrying about being cold-shouldered by somebody. So You're welcome. Thank you. That whole idea of who's the me is feeling slighted. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me, but I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about it because the question resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. The answer 
sure. Yeah. 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 Um, first, to say that when we get a, when we're a little interested, that's the beginning of genuine inquiry. You know, we begin to wonder. You know, what's going on here? Um, and there, one answer to your question is: stay with don't know. And feel what's going on in the body. I mean, uh, the the sort of practice piece with this, one of the ways to practice with this, is to notice what's going on in the mind. Um, he shouldn't treat me that way. Or, you know, doesn't he like me? Or, you know, whatever might be the... the and to label that as thinking. Having... having um, a, an angry thought about so-and-so or having a hurt thought about so-and-so and then coming back to the breath and the body. One of the first things we have to do is to, to begin to loosen the link between the fuel and the fire. And so as, as, we, as we turn intentionally from the thought, not cutting it off, acknowledging it, here it is, and I'll put you on hold for a while and come back to what's going on right here now. Then as this begins to settle, this will begin to settle too. But as long as they're rolling like that, it's impossible to, to, to get an experiential answer to who am I. Okay. Um, the real answer to that question is you'll never find out because there's truly nobody there. Now, I can tell you that. It's just so much blah, blah, blah. But as you begin to, to watch how this stuff operates, you begin to see there's a, there's a seeing. Language can get really slippery around this stuff. There's a seeing of I, as thinking, arising. And how that activates the body. And in that seeing, there's... Mm, there's the, the, the fire of the personalization begins to die out a bit. Because in and itself is not feeding on itself anymore. There's just the seeing. And what whatever is coming and going. Okay. So the, the 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 beginning point is to simply wonder, who's this happening to? The mind will want to get an answer to that. <laughs> The important thing is to sit right at the edge of that not knowing and be with the subjective experience of what's going on in the body. Right? And, and much, I, for me, and it's just, it's just my, kind of my thing, that's where all genuine religious inquiry goes. It's about truth. Truth means seeing 
things as they are. Not through the lens of conditioned thinking. It also means seeing conditioned thinking as it is. Useful to some degree, useless and even destructive in other senses. And it's really important to know the difference in the way you begin to see that is by noticing what's going on in the body. You know, thinking that is is a task oriented is um, you know how how do I how do I plot my course to get from home to here and back again? Yeah. How do I plot out my day, et cetera, et cetera? That will often have a fairly clean feel to it. Other kinds of thinking, particularly the sort of obsessional kinds of stuff that the mind gets in to try and figure out something that feels a bit threatening or unresolved, if you really stay with that on and off the cushion, you'll find that that really doesn't feel good. I mean, it really is unpleasant. And then the practice comes back to whatever your anchor is and just opening in a spacious way to that. But this coming home to the breath, the sensations of the body, sound, when you're out walking, sight, move things moving. I mean, again, walking down the street. You don't get to choose what you see. Nor do we get to choose how it changes. Interestingly, nor do we get to choose how the body-mind reacts to that. And again, just don't, if any of this resonates with you, road test it. Road test it. Check it out for yourselves. Yeah. Sure. I'm pretty good at the same still. I'm really not good at the observing the thing, right? Yeah. So like, I, I like thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I do it a lot, you know? It's, it's cool. I get in trouble if I don't. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I hear you about, about this destructive power. Um, yeah. yeah. And it can get, it can get me in plenty of trouble for sure. Um, and I guess, you know, there's the, a part of me that thinks this has to be doing me some good. But then I see it not only. Right. And the road testing, that's helpful. But maybe go into a little more detail for me. Sure. <laughs> how, how, do I, how do I start sorting these out a little bit? Yeah. You know, the, the, um, well, one thing is to feel it in the body. Yeah. Stop and just notice what's going on in the body because the body doesn't lie. Yeah. You know? I mean, I had a, a teacher of mine, a psychotherapy teacher, years and years and years ago say, the body knows before the mind and it's a lot smarter. You know, so that's that's one piece, because if the body's saying this is making me sick, you know, this stuff is making me sick. It's worth paying attention to. Right. And if the body's saying, yeah, we're kind of good with this. No problem. Now, the 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 um, I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. You know, in some ways, that's really primitively hardwired, because thinking is a is a human tool 
that allowed us basically to get a leg up on saber-toothed tigers and kill, kill woolly mammoths so we had meat for the winter, right? And do theories of the universe and that kind of thing. Um, in many ways, it's not well set up uh, to distinguish between those fears and the fears about, you know, what's going to happen if I, if, you know, I'm late to work or what's going to happen if I lose my job or what's going to happen if my date doesn't like me or, you know, what's going to happen if my kids come home and whatever, right? When we find the mind really cycling the same stuff, and it doesn't take long, right? I mean, if we've got a kind of emotional problem or interpersonal problem to figure out, if we're paying even a modicum of attention, we begin to see that the machinery is pumping out the same widgets, right? Over and over. It's like being in the middle of a, of a merry-go-round, and you just see the same horses coming around and around, and the, the same tune on the merry-go-rounds being played, right? Take a look to see if what's driving that is fear. Because there's, there's often a piece that says, uh, rather primitively, and not to put a fine point on this, but if I don't get this figured out, it'll kill me. Right? If I don't get figured out why my boss is mad at me, I could lose my job, then me and my family will be out on the street, given the job market, I won't be able, and then we'll all be on food stamps, and you know, my kids will be peddling, Right? And that's, it, it goes there very quickly. If we're, if we're not in touch with the underlying fear that drives that, then we become at the mercy of that continuously repeating feedback loop. Okay. So one of the giveaways is if we find ourselves in that, back it, back it off a little bit. What am I really afraid of here? Let me sit with that. Let me just... And for, of course, the first thing you're going to notice when you're, when, if you sit with that, your breath is going to be going, <laughs> you know, there's not going to be anything long and relaxed about it, right? And your body's going to be pretty unpleasant, probably. Because it's, you know, the mind has been telling it, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Right? And it's, it reacts to that stuff. So look for, the, look for the fear piece and ask, you know, what is it that I'm really afraid of here? And it may be something that you can actually do something about. Right? And it may be, this is an itch I'm going to have to sit with because, and keep my eyes open, but any scratching of this itch is counterproductive. Right? Make, make some sense? Yeah, that's, yeah. So when you said that mindset is unconditioned, I don't know, is it uh, uncaused or what? Is it what? Uncaused? Yeah, good question. Yeah, good question. Hmm. Yeah, 
Well, a couple of things. Let me let me just say, let me pick up on what you mentioned about a conditioned practice, and then and then go from there a little bit because all all practices are made up by human beings, okay, the, and and they're created by thought and experience. By definition, they're limited. Um, they're conditioned. They're also, as far as I can tell, essential for the development of a contemplative life, of a life of insight and wisdom and love. Um, so when we work with the breath, or we work with sound, or we work with the koan, or, or uh, we work with uh, what happens in relationship. There's some intentionality about that. It's a, it's a practice of learning. You know, we want to learn why we're doing what we're doing and why and how it hurts so much. Because naturally, we'd like to be free of that. So these conditioned practices begin to give us some stability, begin to sort of train the mind-body to make them fit to begin to do some of this deeper work. At some point, at some point, practice in a formal kind of way simply becomes um, keeping the conditioned feedback loop going Oh, I'm practicing. I'm still working on myself. And this gets this has more and more and more subtle nuances to it. I'm not sure, frankly, it ever goes away. I've not talked to anybody uh, that it's gone away for, um, including some people that I think of are pretty, you know, pretty accomplished in this stuff. Um, and there's a, there's a, at some point, if we're going to, if we're going to be open to that which is not bounded by conditioned thinking and experience, you know what what the Buddha points to as the unborn, the deathless, the boundless. It seems to me that there has to be a willingness to stop doing intentionally. Mm, that's not quite right. That we will come to a point where it'll be recognized that more doing is counterproductive for the continued opening of the heart and mind. So when I use the unconditioned, that's the kind of thing I'm trying to point to, allude to. Like I said, words get, you get it's weird around this sort of edge. When... Um, when sound is heard, that is unconditioned. 
what happens after that sound, oh, there's a car passing by, or I don't, you know, I don't like X, Y, or Z. That's the conditioned piece. The moment of, of waking up, as far as I can tell, there's nobody doing that, caused by something, but I, I'm, I'm personally not aware of what that is. It seems to have a non-personal quality to it. In, <clears throat> in the Baya Sutta, the Buddha talks about when in the hearing there is just the heard, in the seeing, just the seen, in the sensing, uh, thinking, feeling, tasting, touching, there is that and only that, then there is no you to be found. Right? At, at the moment of hearing that, there's, you didn't do that. I mean, right now as, as you're listening... Nobody in this room, I would guess, is aware of your age, your gender, your name. There's hearing and right? nobody doing that. Some thinking may be going along with that. You know, while this is really making sense or why didn't he shut up or you know, whatever may be floating around. And so I don't take that personally anymore because I don't think you get a choice at that. So not a problem. Um, so that's the that's the kind of thing. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> Even a little. Isn't, isn't having an ear the condition of hearing sound? Well, that's a story about what happens. That's you know what I'm what I'm talking about is what happens when there's no story. Um, and I'm not saying that stories are, are useless. I mean, we're storytelling creatures. It's kind of what we do. You know. where, we, uh, where we kind of run off the rails is believing that the stories we tell ourselves about life are the truth. That's a problem. Because as uh, one teacher said to his student who urgently wanted to know what the truth was. Tell me what the truth is. He said, it just moved. And, and in order to keep, you know, somewhat a pace of that, if we're constantly caught up in our stories about that movement, we're always a, at least a half a step behind. And cognitive science tells us that we're half a step behind anyway. You know, because any thought we have about that, that's already gone before thinking is activated. You know, they're doing some really interesting stuff with this. They, you know, one experiment is they give somebody a little button to push and they're all wired up. And they say, look, your only job is to let us know right before your intention to push the button. And what they find is that even before the person is aware of their intention to push the button, the electrochemical system in the body is already activated in the sequence that will lead them to say, I'm about to push the button and pushing the button. You know, you talk about Einstein's spooky at a distance stuff, right? So all this is like, okay, maybe what we think about it is, it's, it's not that and more. 
I love that, I love that phrase. I can't remember where I heard it. It ain't mine. But, you know, whatever we think about something, it's not that and more. You know, these are just invitations to kind of open, you know, to notice where we shut down around this stuff and pinch off the vastness that, you know, most people who do this stuff would say is our true nature. Uh, Others would say that the pinching off is also part of our true nature, you know, which is a kind of interesting non-dual way to, to bring this whole piece together, I think. So... Yeah. Um, I have what's maybe a little bit of a technical question. Uh, so you, you've been talking, you, you said right at the beginning you were talking about falling asleep. Yeah. And you also talked about um, discomfort and or trying to sit with an urge to move mm-hmm. and trying to sit with it and use it as a test of, or try to use it as a, as a way to examine kind of what Right. Can feel like a test. Impulse. Can feel like a test. Right. <laughs> so, right. right. So um, I guess what I'm wondering is one of the so uh, sleepiness is a, a common problem, uh, probably for everybody. Uh huh. Sooner or later. Um, and while I can kind of see the usefulness of sitting, even though when my leg is killing me and my brain is saying the timer's almost up, you forgot to set the timer. You know, like that kind mm-hmm. of thing. I have a little bit of a harder time seeing the usefulness of what feels like, you know, waking up four times during an hour. Um, right. So I guess, so sometimes, and I've read different things about this, and sometimes if I'm really falling asleep, I'll just call it off and say I'll try some other time. Uh-huh. But I was wondering if you could give me some insight into whether it is, what, what is the, what's, what do you hope to learn from struggling? Yeah, yeah it's a, that's, a great, that's a great question. You know, one of the things I really like about this is I'll say something, and, and you guys will pick up a piece that is clearly not, you know, I've not addressed. And so this way we can kind of fill it out. Um, beware, you know, I'm always aware of having conversations with myself. They're really limited. Um, so a couple of things. One of the things that, that you can learn by, by waking up is, what happens when you wake up? Is there frustration? Is there uh, uh, self-judgment? You know, is there, or is there just, wow, I just woke back up, or waking back up happened, right? So there is there an edge of suffering there, right? Um, and so then that becomes, and, and often that can really energize, at least until it goes like this again, right? And then it's, you're back, and for me, it was embarrassment, frustration. I mean, now I just go to sleep, I wake up, it's not that big a deal. But for years, going to sleep was like awful for me. You know, I'd, I'd go on retreat, they'd ring the bell, and I'd spend the rest of the retreat doing this. And I'm sure I've got neck problems as a result. You know, it's like meditation whiplash, it's brutal. Right? And then you've got this logie sort of the eyeball. The lids feel like they got five pound weights on them, you know. And then your breath is compressing, and it's now you're underwater, and you can't. Right? I mean, it really sucks. Um, and years for this, okay. Um, and 
I wish I would have known then what I just said to you. Watch the mind's reaction to waking up. Watch the mind's reaction to struggling with sleep that says, oh, I'm wasting my time. How do you know? How do you know? <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, that's one piece. Right? Now, there are also lots of ways to, you know, if, if uh, you prefer to change your posture and do your, do your practice standing, you know, the, the, I think that, and, and this was something else that clicked when you said this, how do we know when it's wise to move and wise to stay put? Right? Um, I've got a crushed nerve in my, in my hip, so I know that when it starts to send certain signals, I need to do a little of this just to get the weight off that, that hip, right? If I'm saying, no, keep, you know, there's wisdom here, learn from this. You know, next time you see me, I'll be in a leg brace. That's not wisdom, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. If, you've got a, if you've got a physical injury, you need, to, you need to attend to that with self-compassion and wisdom, right? So, and if you've got a body that's young, God bless you, and, and probably isn't banged up from all kinds of stuff, or maybe it is, um, then you can take the, am I hurting myself off the table, with the exception of if you're doing long sittings and you get up and your leg, you know, it goes to sleep while you're sitting, and that's a nerve compression. You know, there used to be, oh, it's blood flow. Bullshit. It's nerve compression. And if it comes back right away, not a problem. If you find that there's a little tingling after you've still been walking for, you know, a minute or so, or two, you know, just the normal sort of time it would take to pass, then go to a chair. Because people do crush nerves in their hips, in the, in the buttocks. So again, it's pay attention. Now, in terms of other physical pain, this is about the development of wisdom and asking oneself, is it useful for me to continue to sit with this? You know, can I sit with this for another breath? Let's say you're sitting with some fairly intense physical discomfort. And you've, you've made some effort to notice the rest of the body and try and relax the body around it. And, you know, it's gotten a little fiery. So do it a breath at a time. You know, can I sit profitably with this for another breath or two? And keep checking in with yourself. And, you know, when it gets to that point where... And don't let it get to, okay, I can sit with this another breath. No, no. You will know if you pay attention when it's time to move. You've been sitting for 30 seconds and you're doing this. No. But you've been sitting for a while or maybe you're doing retreat practice and, you know, fiery stuff will come up. 
And if and really, if you're not sitting long enough to experience some discomfort, you're not sitting long enough, basically. Uh, I mean, part of the part of the craziness about this is that this is a vehicle for us to have a kind of experimental container in which we can learn how to work with discomfort. Now, that needs a certain amount of stability of body and calmness of mind. So we're really talking about a careful training here. And then if you need to move, do it mindfully. You know, if that itch on the ear really, you know, it's like your head is going to explode and you really believe that, then notice how this goes. And notice how much is enough. And then bring it back down. And then notice what happens with the mind. Because most of the time, that itch has just gone onto the surface and it'll pop up back over here. (laughs) Back up in here. Right? So I, I think you get the idea. But again, it's learning how much is really useful. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this has some real value off the cushion. Right? So, thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, I mean, one of the ways to anchor that a little more is uh, to, to experiment for a week with, with just this practice. Every time you, you notice getting caught, in, caught up in thinking, having a thought about X, it gives you some idea of what actually is on the mind, and then go to the breath and the body. Because most thoughts will create some sort of chemical reaction in the body that we experience as sensations. And so go there. And you'll find that that will begin to anchor you more in the sensations in the body. And then, you know, I'll tell you, this practice has kept me out of more trouble than I would own in public in grocery lines and traffic jams and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, just doing what I just suggested. So, this stuff is really portable, you know. And when I think, I think when you begin to get that truly practice opportunities are everywhere and all the time, then you begin. Then the practice becomes more continuous, and it becomes more integrated and a part of your life. It becomes your life in a certain kind of way. You know, Ajahn Chah used to talk about it's the con- continuity of the practice that sets this thing on fire. And I, he wasn't talking about greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, he was talking about the joy and passion of living. 
Um, <laughs> just one more quick story, and then, then we'll stop. Um, I've heard, as I was not a party to this, but I've heard from reliable sources that, do you know the name Ajahn Chah? A really well-known Thai force teacher, uh, quite the character, apparently. Um, was out at IMS, and people are doing Burmese-style walking meditation. They're going very, very, very slowly. And he's walking up to people and kind of looking at them with this mischievous grin, saying, I hope you feel better soon. So, you know, if this stuff doesn't make you giggle a little bit and there's not some sense of playfulness in it, um, it it's, it's out of balance. And it's easy to get out of balance with, with life. I mean, this, you know, this is life we're talking about. So, um, okay. If, if any of you have other questions, you want to catch me for a minute or so afterwards, we can do that. Um, thank you. Uh, for me, this has just been an absolute delight. So thank you very much.